our new way of starting is, I'm going to say hi. <laughs> hi. We have a very special guest today, and I'm going to let her introduce herself because um, she's one of my favorite people in the world and just one of the most, I don't know how to describe her, just warm and down to earth and full of like just loving, just really, really loving people I've met in the last few years and uh, does incredible work, which we're going to get into today on the podcast. And yeah, Casey, do you want to introduce yourself? I'm a little beclumped. Sounds very <laughs> sweet. <laughs> My name is Casey Marquardt and I am a Virgo with a Scorpio moon and ascendant. <laughs> So I do feel deeply and my analytical nature is a little uncomfortable with it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that was a very touching um, introduction. I appreciate it. In this lifetime, it is 100% my karmic path to help people ease their suffering. Like that's it. And um, growing up, I wasn't really sure how that would play out. You know, I always thought about going into um, counseling of some sort. And then I realized that like that would be way too hard on my own emotional status because I just kind of take that on um, rather than being able to deflect it. At least when I was younger, I wasn't comfortable with that, you know. and. I experienced a lot of trauma as a child. I have a really high ACE um, score, which is the adverse childhood experience. Mm -hmm. um, my dad committed suicide, was an alcoholic, committed suicide when I was young, got molested by my cousin when I was young, got into drugs very early, um, very, very experimental, kind of lived a double life. When I was going through high school, I was doing a lot of drugs and still maintaining my straight A average and, you know, being in theater and music and all of these things. And it was simply because I didn't have an outlet. I didn't know how to deal with all of the things that had happened in my life. Yeah. Um, I also grew up in the Southern Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. My brother was a racist, I mean, racist I my parents were we'll say low-key racist but as an example you know they took me to a therapist when I was a sophomore in high school because I had too many black friends wow but never once did they think about you know therapy or some kind of outlet for me to process my dad dying from suicide you know, not once. It was like, oh, he, you know, shot himself and now we're just going to move on. And it was really, really hard for me to maintain friendships and maybe not maintain friendships, but I guess allow people to see me more deeply. I would hold people, you know, like the arm's length kind of, you can only get so close um, yeah. because I didn't know what to do with it. Right. And so fast forward, go to, go off to college and I just wild out. 
like I just didn't know what the fuck to do with myself. And so I stayed kind of on that path of self-medicating and just, you know, running from the situation. And I ended up getting pregnant by the second person I ever slept with in my life, right? Because I was raised Southern Baptist. So I was terrified of sex. And, you know, it was just a whole, that's a whole nother (laughs) Oprah. But I um, had a daughter at 20 that I placed for adoption. And that caused a huge thing with my family. My mom Mm -hmm. tried to stop the adoption. The lawyer was like, you're crazy. You have no rights. Like there was, and I was estranged from my family for almost 10 years. And that is when I found Reiki. Um, I've been a Reiki practitioner for almost 20 years. It'll be 20 years next February. And it's also where I found not only cognitive behavioral therapy, but other ways to somatically release trauma from my body. So like EFT, the tapping, EMDR, the eye movement, and going and talking to someone who without judgment can guide me through the process of being able to work through the trauma that has literally been stored in my body, you know, since I was a seven-year-old kid. And it was, it was such a life-changing experience. And it was at that point that I was like, okay, I have to, I have to do something in like the trauma field. I have to in some way, help others, however I can, right? Because I'm not a clinical, uh, licensed mental health, you know, professional. I'm not that person. I am a person who has experienced and worked through, and of course, things still pop up, right? Because yeah. it's just what happens. How it happens. Um, yeah, for sure. And you're like, oh, I thought I'd work that out. And then you're like, oh, <laughs> I guess I haven't. Okay, you're back for more. But being able to be compassionate and empathize with folks, we can't heal the world, right? But we can heal what we can touch. And so for me, that started, I left my corporate 15-year career in post-secondary education six and a half years ago. Yeah, six and a half years ago. And... I, you know, became a certified yoga teacher, just 200 hours, but that was just like the base of what I wanted to do because I wanted to use yoga. I wanted to use Reiki and I wanted to use um, my experience with trauma and working through it to help other people. I just didn't really know what that looked like. Right. So I got my 200 hour. And then I started studying restorative yoga, which is basically nervous system manipulation and moving from that fight flight mode into a rest, relax, digest um, state of being. Then I was like, I literally live a 35 second drive from the gate at Folsom prison. I wonder if they have a yoga program. I wonder if they're even like open to something like that. So I called and I left like seven messages on seven different extensions because I had no idea who I had to talk to. And about a week later, I got a call back from 
the community resource manager there and he was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that you called. We had a yoga program three months ago, but the guy moved and could no longer, you know, he's, he can't come. And I'm like, oh my God, this is such perfect timing because of course it is. And so, yeah, I went through the orientation and, you know, all of this stuff, you know, it's very, like, you don't think about some things, right? Like he was talking about becoming over familiar, how volunteers and people, even prison guards can become over familiar with the inmates and how you can't trust these people, right? But also providing some examples of like, wow, I never would have thought about that. You know, this guy comes to the person who's leading the group and talks about how his mom's really sick. He hasn't heard anything, an update from the family in two weeks. And like, he's freaking out, right? Visibly to this person, he's freaking out and is like, can you please call and just make sure that she's okay? And the person very innocently is like, sure, I can call. So they call talk and say, Hey, you know, he's, I'm calling, but on behalf of X, Y, Z, he just wanted to reach out and see how this, whatever the name is, is doing. And it turns out that he was actually calling the inmates victim, not the mother and totally re-traumatizing her from afar, you know? And so there are these things, right. That you're just like, Holy shit. I just never would have thought about that. But on the flip side of the coin, there are a lot of folks who have been locked up for a long fucking time and they are not the same person that they were when they walked in 27 years ago. It's just, they're not the same person. So I started teaching at Folsom Prison And I was terrified the first day that I walked in because obviously I'm like, holy shit, this is wild. So I'm in my car doing naughty Shodna breathing and just like trying to get myself grounded. And I ran a 16 week block um, because a lot of guys wanted to start practicing. California had just uh, started the RAC, um, which is credits or rehabilitation programs that they can earn. And based off of how many credits they earn per year, they can get time off of their sentence. And basically for good behavior, right? Because like Mm -hmm. the, the people who are seeking out rehabilitation are not the people we really need to be worrying about. Casey. Yes. When was this? Can you give Um, me a timeline? Give us a timeline. 2000, um, end of 2016 is okay. when I reached out. We started the program February of 2017. Wonderful. And um, so we did 16-week blocks and rotated through so as many people as possible could be exposed, right? And so I was at Folsom, which is a level one through three facility. And I was there until the end of 2018. And then I got contacted by CSP SAC, which is the facility that is basically next door to Folsom, but it's a level four facility. And it's one of only two psychiatric facilities in California. And I was a little like, who, I don't know if I want 
to go into this energy, right? Because it's very, very different. Like you have to wear an alarm on your belt. You wear a whistle around your neck. I mean, like it is very, you know, there's some things that have been done by people in there that we probably can't even imagine, you know? And so even walking onto that property, once I walk through the gate and it gives me chills, even talking about it right now, it was such an energetic difference from Folsom. Because Folsom, like I would walk across the yard to get to the chapel where I taught in the chapel that was built in like 1856 and still has the original floors, you know, this sacred space for so many people that I got to teach in, right? Whereas at CSB SAC, no, 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 no. They escorted me through the yard and then, and I didn't have really an escort for Folsom. I had my brown card. I could walk around and do what I wanted. Whereas with CSB SAC, like you're being escorted. And I go to the gym, which is super loud. There's like open toilets for these guys to, you know, it's just a completely different environment and energy. And so that was the end of 2018, moving into 2019. And then I was, I had been diagnosed with severe osteoarthritis in both of my knees um, at 38. And by the end of 2019, I had to see a specialist at Stanford for a partial knee replacement for both of my knees. And I was like, okay, I'm going to have to take like a hiatus because I'm going to have surgery in March of 2020. Mm-hmm. And we all know what happened. In we March all know about March 2020. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so I had my first knee replacement two days prior to Stanford elective surgeries. And so I had that. Then two months later, they called me, said, we want to bring the youngest and healthiest back in. Um, Do you want to move your second knee replacement from July up to the beginning of May? And I was like, yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. And so did that, had an accident in the hospital and got dropped by a CNA, which then tore my entire, entire medial knee capsule of my right knee, which was nine weeks post-op and my retinaculum. And so I had to have a second surgery in less than a month on my right knee, back on my right knee. So two surgeries on my right knee and um, had really horrible adverse reactions to the medication, ended up in the ER 10 days after this surgery. It was a hot mess and it was such a reminder. I mean, the universe was like, bitch, please, you gotta chill. <laughs> I mean, <Slow> down. <laughs> seriously, because I was like busting ass in yeah. PT. My physical therapist was like, holy shit, Casey. I'm like, look at me. I'm doing these assisted squats mm-hmm. on the brand new knee. This is awesome. And I was like, I'm going to get out of here with this left knee and I'm going to be feeling amazing. No. You needed and, a big and, time and, pattern interrupt. Dude, major and it was really hard it was really fucking hard and I am the person who teaches to slow down I am the Mm -hmm. person who teaches 
no rushing. Like, and I was just like, get me the fuck out of this bed. (laughs) (laughs) We all need reminders. I mean, I think it's like so important to just keep coming back to that. Like even those of us, because I also have that, like, you know, so much of the conversations I'm Mm -hmm. having with, with my clients, it's about slowing down, right? Slow down, stop saying yes to shit. All right, Casey. Casey, I yes. want to. I have so many questions. <laughs> I have so many notes. I don't want to interrupt and you. Is your cat hairless? Yeah, we have a sphinx. I was just, I was just gonna say, like the, the audience can't see what what is happening here, oh but my, my jaw God. has been on the floor the whole time listening to Casey and Ashley's sphinx cat just keeps crossing over and over and over her lap back and forth in true what cat is fashion. The cat's name? Bally, B A L L Y. Yeah, Bally. I had a cat Ashley growing up called Bally. He was named Apparently after the he... pinball manufacturer. He wants to be in. And out of my lap every 20 seconds. So we're just going to go. With- <laughs> so cute. Oh, so um, cute. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. No, 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 please. Um, one thing that really st- struck me about a lot of your story was this through line of working with altered states and healing through altered states. I think talking about childhood trauma that can create altered states and then also, uh, drug use and numbing and coping can also be it's a bit of a controversial opinion but I actually think drugs can be can save us a lot of times when we're young and dealing with a lot of trauma and anxiety I think self-medicating sometimes is actually the option that helps us to stay and I think we're drawn to it for a reason until it no longer serves us. And it's not serving us really, but it is also at the same time, if that makes sense. The mind opening exposure and the ability to really understand the gravity that we are all connected. Like it is all connected. And I've, I fully agree with you and being able to experience that in the formative years, I think has definitely created a whole much more openness in my mind than ever would have been there previously, especially because of how I was raised. It's so interesting coming from a background of trauma and drug use and then your mind and and soul and body finding its expansion through that journey, through that route, and then taking something like energetic work, Reiki, physical and emotional. And, and I believe yoga is also energetic as well. And, and really seeing and transferring that into a, an altered state of healing that is then really serving you and serving others. And there's no wrong or right. I'm saying this all without any kind of judgment. But it's really, it's really interesting. Just, it's a path that I feel like in one way, shape or form, a lot of us have found ourselves on. And I really, I really feel like the role of numbing through altered states, through uh, substances, and then, and then through meditation, and then through, Mm -hmm. you know, EMDR, 
and somatic healing and then through yoga. It's just this really interesting through line. And I think that it's a really important part of the journey. And then I also think it gets wildly abused, which we can talk about as well. But isn't that, isn't that like the, the point of all of these conversations is that we have tools and how, how easy it is for tools to become weapons, right? That we use against ourselves. So, and anything, maybe not anything, but most things in, in my experience anyway, can go can really easily go too far. So that's actually, I'm going to come back to this, but it's related to one of the, one of the things that I was wanting to ask you, Casey, is like the, the really common thread that we're weaving through this podcast and the concept of virtuous is that both and right. Mm -hmm. That objective of centeredness. Right. And so the, the thing that is coming up for me, listening to you speak, Casey, because you are so present you are so centered in in your presence here and this is the first time Casey and I have I mean we've in passing been in in groups together but really had a conversation outside of you know the dms so to be able to sit here with you and really feel your presence and feel your power in your centeredness it's really su- such a rare trait that I'm it's all I'm attracted to anymore. I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but when I meet someone that is just really centered in in their shit, I'm like, I like you, like you, you really got it going on. And so the question for me is, okay, so you've been working in this spiritual sphere, right? The yoga, Reiki, energetic work, healing, personal development sphere for some time. And you are someone who was drawn to that. Like, I think most of us, you know, I've got my own fair share of trauma. Ashley does too. We all fucking have it, right? Absolutely. Coming coming from this, like all of these traumas, being someone who has her shit to deal with, how do you stay centered while being immersed in this, this industry that is so, when we've been talking about it, it's been, it's, it's, I said in the last episode, I think like it was, it's been hijacked, but I don't even really, really want to say it that way because it's sort of always been like this. Like some of the roots of the industry are in delusion and bypassing. So the, the, like, I think one of the things that's so important to keep bringing into the conversation is how do you, Casey, since you're our guest today, maintain that? We've referred to it as ethical spirituality. We keep coming back to that term. So for me, last year, my experience was definitely different than many, I would say most people's just because I was in actual physical recovery from joint replacement, you know, but it was kind of a double edged sword, because, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't like posting a whole lot of stuff on social media, right? Because I didn't, I was literally laying in a bed. But I was reading a bunch of stuff. I was starting to see all of these theories arise and starting to question, you know, what some folks were espousing and teaching and the ideas that they were putting out there and the things that they were defending. And I was like, this is really fucking weird, man. 
it was not anything that resonated with me at all. Yeah, it just it, it just wasn't. And I felt a little betrayed mm-hmm. because that's how I felt. You know, I just did not, I just couldn't, I couldn't buy into what was being sold to me. I just couldn't buy into it. And then questioning, you were talking about commodifying spirituality and community. And then I started really kind of thinking, hmm, I know just a few women who I would want to keep in my inner circle that are in the spiritual community that I was in, right? But the majority, I would not. And why have I been paying for this? Mm-hmm. And it was almost just like, okay, wait, was I bamboozled? What happened? You know, because there were many teachings and practices that really resonated with me previously, you know, and I was feeling really good about it. And then I would say, yeah, like August-ish of last year, I was just like, what the fuck is happening? What is happening? Yeah. <laughs> what is happening? And it made me, yeah, like I said, feel betrayed. It made me feel really hurt and sad. And I almost had a little bit of shame, but not almost a little bit. I did have a little bit of shame. Um, yeah. Because I was like, how could I get sucked into something that turned into this? Mm. You know, and Ashley, you and I think have talked about it's like watching people move into this cult like behavior and relationship. And I looked at myself and I was like, that's sort of kind of what was going on. I feel like with, you know, the last, I don't know, three and a half years, four years of my life with that community. And it, yeah, it made me feel really bummed out, you know, but to your original question of remaining centered, I am not an oversharer. I have a real hesitancy and I mean, I would almost say aversion to just like putting all my shit out there because yeah, I just don't trust everyone with it. And mm-hmm. I, you know, like on this trip, I was like, oh, I'm going to post and I'm going to do this and do all this stuff. But I do, I have an aversion to it. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to do a little more with our experiences, but I still like to keep a lot of things close to the cuff. And yeah. the most beautiful thing in the world for me to teach is restorative yoga with yoga nidra. And yoga nidra is even if I just lay and do just the body scan and I don't go on into the alternate sensations and rapid image visualization, if I can just lay down and do the body scan in my mind, it just really allows me to come back, you know, and it's, it's a quick way to do it. And another way that I do it is with my breath. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to tell you in talking about, working in the prisons the very first class I taught and I don't think he would mind me using his first name his name was Tim and 
Tim actually got transferred in 2018 and is out now um, and living his best life. And I'm really happy to know that about him. I think he moved up Northwest somewhere. But he came up to me and, you know, in these practices, these are trauma-informed practices and it includes yoga, breath work, it includes mindfulness. I mean, we did we did at least 15 minutes of yoga nidra at the end of every single practice, at least. And the rest was breath and mindful movement and really allowing them to get out of their head and move into their body. Because so many people around us, not just people who are in prison, just live their lives from like here up, you know, the collarbone up. There is, it doesn't always feel good to move your awareness into your body because that's when you really start to shit starts to come up right yep. in stillness and in quiet it's when we're not constantly distracted that we really start to see things that we don't necessarily want you know those things that we've just shoved them way down that's where they're staying you know and in stillness and in quiet and with the breath, that stuff does start to bubble. And so people don't always want to go there. But it was such a beautiful, oh, such an awesome moment when he came up to me after class and he was like, Casey, I've never felt myself breathe before. Mm. And I sort of don't know what to do with it. And I was like, just keep practicing it. You know, like before you go to bed, practice what we did. You know, and sometimes we did alternate nostril breathing. Sometimes we did inhale to four, hold four, exhale four, pause four, you know, did all kinds of different breath practices and just the moments of allowing yourself to really feel the air around your nostrils. You know, it's cool when you inhale, it's warm when you exhale. To feel the actual expansion and contraction of your lungs of your rib cage to feel the little intercostal muscles stretching, you know, getting into those small, but really like, holy shit, I never even knew that that was there. Feelings in your body, it just makes you, it's that inward focus. It's important, you know, because we're always looking for external or not always. Okay. Most of the time we're always, we're looking for external, um, external teachers, right. To teach us what we need to know when in all actuality, mm. all we need to do is turn inside and we know. Something that really stood out in the context of how you use and apply an ethical, a sense of ethics into your spirituality. And in seeing as we try to uncover what that means or doesn't mean each week, what I'm hearing is that what you're guiding people to do is to become present in their reality, to become present in their body and not only retrain their nervous system, but what you're not doing is telling them to escape or manipulate their reality or to use these outside influences, outside deities, outside concepts in order to access a higher level of healing. What you're doing is saying, 
actually it's all about presence in the here and now in order to get yourself to a place where you can cope and you can take on life. And if that isn't ethical spirituality, I don't know what is. So I'm yeah. so, I'm so glad you said that Ashley, because, because I was going to chime in and say <laughs> like, Casey, what I'm hearing you describe through, you know, the story of this inmate is the way that you stay centered, right? It's the answer to the question that I've already asked. You're the way that you stay centered, the way that you are able to have that highest level of discernment so that when something doesn't sit right, you're, you are present and observing it in real time. And that is coming through your first of all willingness and second of all the ability that you've developed through the practicing of being present which one of one of the workshops i was teaching a couple of years ago is called the practice of presence pre just pre covid and i remember someone said to me like that's really vague someone that has like a huge following i taught this workshop to her audience she was like i don't even know what that means i'm like how do you not know what the practice of presence is and you have this whole this that's another thing yeah but anyway it it is is through it is through your presence right that's what's so so impactful i also just wanted to mention how much i relate to your feelings of betrayal earlier in the year when you started to see these and uh, Kelsey, you mentioned this before, like, I think that some of those conspiracies have always been in the wellness and spiritual community. And I think that we never really had a reason to unpack them before. Mm-hmm. And it's similar to religion, where when you really start to unpack them and look at the roots and get in there, you see what what stands and what doesn't. You know, yep. I, I'm a student of religion, I studied religion. And and things fall apart very quickly. And and some things don't. Some things are really these amazing, beautiful consistencies amongst all different religions and, and belief systems. But a lot of the kind of dogma, a lot of the conspiracy, a lot of the things that are aimed toward control, they fall away really quickly. And I think that we have all felt this sense of total disillusionment within spiritual community and things that we thought were going to be healing and safe and magical turned out to be these kind of dangerous and unethical farces that are built on it's a house of cards you know and you take one out and all of a sudden the whole thing tumbles and then trying to pick up the pieces and saying well what does my spirituality mean now and what does it look like and can I still use these practices in a way that feels good and ethical. And then also, because I know that there's something really important there and there's something incredibly healing there. So trying to really boil down the elements of energetic work and spirituality in ways that are for us instead of, again, and I'll say it, trying to manipulate or escape our reality, but instead bringing us into our our presence, you know, and the presence of our life around us. Yes. Uh, 150 million percent. Yes. <laughs> yes. I want to circle back to uh, talking about being present in our, our reality when I'm teaching, ensuring that people are present in their reality. 
And what it ultimately boils down to, in my opinion, is that we literally only suffer because we want things to be different. And it sounds so simple and you're like, Oh my God, what is that? Doesn't, what is that? Doesn't even mean anything, but it does. You know, when you're something as small as being hot, hot, it's because you want it to be cooler. You know, you only suffer because you want things to be different than what they are. So in class, you know, with the guys talking about their reality, their reality is that they're there period. You know, they're not going to go anywhere, but what they can choose is their reaction to situations, their reaction to, you know, news that they get about families, their reactions to denials from parole boards, you know, what is the reaction? That's what you have control over. And you're only going to suffer when you want things to be different than what they are. And it's a really simple idea, right? Simple, but simple is not necessarily easy. That's right. I mean, you know, there is a big difference. So that uh, something that is very important to me and kind of a foundational idea that I kind of, you know, live by. And talking about presence also, um, Kelsey, the person who said, oh, what is this, you know, what is this practice of presence? I, I feel like whenever you're someone who holds space for other people, gui- guiding meditation, guiding breath work, doing restorative yoga, these are all very slow and quiet practices where I'm able to allow people to just be. And for me, being able to hold that space really allows me to practice presence because, I mean, I'm there. You know, that's right. And so for me, the teaching of that, it's like with Reiki, you know, when you do a Reiki uh, practice and do a treatment on someone, you're also receiving, right? And so when I teach a two hour restorative and yoga nidra class, I am able to take that two hours and use that for me as my personal practice in presence and in holding these space for people that allows them to just and pause, you know? And so that is really helpful for me. And it's, it's a bummer because I haven't really been able to, you know, I've taught some virtual stuff. I think I started doing some stuff last September, but you know, it's just, it's not not the same. It's not not the the same. same. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a beautiful way, beautiful way. I miss it too. It's a beautiful way of putting it because I hadn't really considered that that is part of my own personal practice of presence as well, the space holding, because it really is a practice. It really is choosing to be still and to listen and to not react and to just be there. The mind, the mind just 
Lord Jesus, the man wants to do what it wants to do, you know. And so, you know, coming back, just keeping on coming back, right? Like the idea of mindfulness is not to erase the mind. The practice of mindfulness is choosing something to focus on. Many times I choose the breath, whatever sensation I want to pick for the day. And Every time the freaking mind goes off on the tangent, seeing it, noticing it, and then just coming back, coming Bring back, it back to the sensation, just keep coming back. That's the mind. And that's the practice, but that's, that's the it. practice, right? That's it. 100%. That's, as with anything, the more you do it, the more you practice, the easier, the more fluid. And sometimes it's still really fucking hard. Sometimes oh, I still really don't want to fucking sit down and Four be quiet, days. you know? Yeah, for sure. yes. <laughs> I think it's also what you're saying is like, it's the practice of the resilience mm. that you build. Mm. You know, the bringing back, the re- right? The results, you know? Mm. Yeah, for sure. I love that. That's a very, yeah. yeah. And Casey, have- when you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Quote your ass, girl. You're such a Virgo. You're such a Virgo. I, I love that, it. Put, Put that on a slide, okay, Ashley? That's Put that on, on a graphic for the, the Instagram. bumper sticker, dude. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. I love that's it. I love it. Oh, my God. Um, talking about, you know, the, the suffering really comes through the, the non-acceptance of what is. And acceptance is such an important theme here. And in an episode that we're about to publish that you haven't listened to yet, Casey, we talk about forgiveness and um, acceptance, Uh, right? I'll share that one of my like most pivotal moments, and this is such a, it's such a simple thing. I used to be hot all the time, hot because I was always stressed out, chronic anxiety, just always hot, having hot flashes. I wanted to crawl out of my skin. That was like my catchphrase. I just was so uncomfortable in my body. And I, that the hot flashes was a part of that. And at one point about six years ago now, this is, and I reference this time period all the time because it really was the moment when I was like, what the fuck? Like, what is this? You know, people would call it an awakening, I guess. I'm trying, I'm trying to move away from that terminology because I'm just a little over it, but I just started to allow myself to be hot. And one day woke up and was like, oh, I'm cold. It's 85 degrees and I'm chilly. This is so curious. This simple idea of not trying to turn the AC on to relieve my discomfort, the moment I feel discomfort, suddenly I am adapting. I am adjusting, right? I'm I'm changing through the acceptance and not trying to run away the moment I feel uncomfortable. And um, that was really such a simple thing for me, but it was a pivotal moment in my life of realizing I have, yes, I have power here, you know, and then, and because I had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia about two years prior and trying to figure that out, that then led me to really, and of course, part of what I learned in my uh, at the Mayo Clinic through they have this fibromyalgia class that they run to teach people about, you know, these te- techniques for how you can mitigate and move through some of it. 
at the time I was, when I got the diagnosis, I was just too angry because I was like, you're telling me I have one more thing wrong with my brain. Fuck you. Um, but then finally a, a couple of years later, after I had had this kind of moment, I was like, Oh, so suddenly some of these things that they're teaching me about the brain body connection and mindfulness and, you know, all of these other things are starting to make sense. And I'm starting to believe that I have the capacity to mitigate this experience that I'm having with my nervous system. And that really, that really changed everything for me. So um, simple micro shift that has just led to massive change. And so I think it's really easy to write off. That's part of why I share that story all the time. It's really easy to write off the the tiny, simple things. Mm -hmm. They are not, they're not tiny. We think they are, but they're not, they're life-changing. Absolutely. Well, and it's the nervous system, like that's just really where it's all at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And all of the practices that I teach are directed to the nervous system. And Mm -hmm. the only manipulation I am a fan of is nervous system manipulation. And using restorative yoga, which incorporates support with the props, quiet, stillness, dark, and warmth Mm. to move the body from fight, flight to rest, digest, takes at least 15 minutes for the nervous system to settle, Mm. using yoga nidra and allowing them to move into this space between the conscious and the subconscious. And I mean, it's just such a powerful practice, just 20 minutes, 20 minutes, get on your floor, roll up a couple of towels, put them under your knees, or put your legs up the wall, support under your head, get a blanket, set your timer for 20 minutes, cover your eyes with a scarf, a washcloth, an eye pillow if you have one, and let yourself for a week, seven days, 20 Mm. minutes a day, whenever you want to do it, and see how much better you freaking feel. Giving yourself permission to take 20 minutes to just be, right? I mean, we're in mm-hmm. such a culture of if you're not if you're not doing something, you're doing. not producing something, you're not yeah. being, you know, you're not effective and you're not, you know, a, a human, you're lazy. You're lazy. Yeah. And it's like, no, we yeah. live in a culture that is constantly constantly creating stress on our nervous system we live in a constant state of stress i mean your alerts on your phone create a cortisol response in your body whether it's a good ding or a bad ding doesn't matter it's a ding and we need to really reverse it like big time like i mean it's beyond and so yeah i would say if Folks are willing to take 20 minutes out of their day and allow themselves to be set up in a, com- a comfortable, you want to be comfortable and supported and you want it to be quiet and you want to be warm and set the alarm on a low tone <laughs> to go off. So it doesn't startle you. <laughs> I mean, you will feel it is life changing. It really, really is. It's yeah. again, simple and life changing. We can have both. You know, can I bring up some statistics regarding 
Um, Please do. There is a research and advocacy project, and they're called uh, the Sentencing Project. And they have done two uh, studies previously. This is their third. It was published in this year, 2021. And um, it's called The Color of Justice, Racial and Ethnic Disparity in State Prisons. Um, It's a 25-page document. If either of you are interested, I'm happy to send it to you. The key findings, okay, and so backing up just a little bit, I have heard... And this makes me makes my blood boil a little bit. So I will think clearly about the words that I want to speak. I have heard from multiple sources about Black Lives Matter being this big conspiracy, and you know, also the trans agenda, which is a whole other thing. BLM is not a conspiracy. BLM is not an agenda. Go into a prison and you will very visibly see that there are way more black people and people of color than white people, period. Anyone who wants to argue that fact with me can kindly fuck off. (laughs) I love you. In there. You know, you're not, yeah. you're not, not in there. There's nothing to debate. Not, There's nothing. There is, there is nothing to debate. Key findings of the racial and ethnic disparity in state prisons report from the Sentencing Project is Black Americans are incarcerated in state prisons. And this is only state prisons. This is not private prisons. So that is a completely different topic. Mm-hmm. Um But Black Americans are incarcerated in state prisons nearly five times the rate of white Americans. So nationally, one in 81 Black adults per 100,000 people in the U.S., one in 81 is serving time in a state prison. Wisconsin, they lead the nation, and it's one in every 36 Black people. Wow. In Wisconsin. In 12 states, more than half of the prison population is Black. So Alabama, Delaware, Georgia, Illinois, Louisiana, Maryland, Michigan, Mississippi, New Jersey, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. Seven states maintain a Black-white disparity larger than nine to one. California, Connecticut, Iowa, Maine, Minnesota, New Jersey, and Wisconsin. Latinx individuals are incarcerated in state prisons at a rate that is 1.3 times the incarceration rate of whites. So numbers, let's just put actual numbers to this. Average rate of black, Latinx, and white imprisonment per 100,000 residents, 1,240 black, 349 Latinx, 261 white to 1,240 black folks. We got a problem. So, I mean, you know, for people to, and I've heard both of you talk about part of people's message being 
to discount the experience of whole groups of people. And to hear people talk about, oh, BLM, and they don't do anything for the Black community. Working with the Anti-Terror Police Project in Sacramento, which gets all kinds of donations to BLM, donating hundreds of thousands of dollars to people who have been arrested by the Sacramento PD and families. And I mean, showing receipts for everything documenting everything, you know, like, don't tell me that it's all just a big conspiracy theory. And it's all just an agenda to keep us pitted against each other when the higher ups are, you know, doing their thing. I mean, it's just, it's mind blowing. And it's really bothersome also for me that people who will discount others opinions, because you weren't there. Well, are you with people who are there? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have no idea what you're talking about. So, yeah, I just wanted to get those numbers in there so that there could be some actual statistical data because I think it's really important. And I mean, it is indentured servitude. You know, Folsom Prison is the last prison in California that still does license plates. I didn't know that. And I'm living in the, I'm living in El Dorado County and I did not know that. Yeah. The state of California saves like something like $1.3 billion a year because of the license plates that they print at Folsom prison and the men make eight to 13 cents an hour. And that's how they save that money. So, Mm. you know, the whole setup of policing and the prison system based off of slavery. I mean, that we could talk about for hours and hours and hours, but I mean, it's still, it's the same. There's a huge disparity. There are much harsher sentences. You know, my stepdad, my God, this guy, uh, this was a couple of years ago and I deleted him off and blocked him off of all my social media because of, you know, again, like I said, my parents are racists. And they live in Dallas, Texas now. Mm. And my stepsister, who is a Methodist minister, she is awesome, posted, I don't remember what it was about. It was something about social injustice, racial inequality. And my stepdad's like, oh, you know, the burden of proof is on you. You need to prove this, you know? And... I just got on there and I was like, I cannot stand this. And so I don't know if you remember this kid. I think he was 16 at the time. He was drunk and driving in Dallas and he hit a family in a crosswalk. He was never charged. And then he and his mom ran to Mexico and like all this stuff happened. And I I do remember that. This is a white kid, right? Oh yeah. They said he was not guilty because of affluenza. So he was, I do remember that he grew up too affluent to understand the consequences of his actions. So he was not guilty for killing people in a crosswalk, a family while drunk at 16. This is what Sarah and I call spoiled rotten. (laughs) Yeah. And so my stepdad is on, you know, social media trying to call out my stepsister 
um, for trying to bring these things to light and says, well, you need to give me proof. And so I popped on there and I said, have you ever seen a black 16 year old drunk murder a family in a crosswalk with his car and get off from affluenza? No, I don't think that you have. And then he deleted all of his comments, you know, because it's like, are you kidding right now? Like what the actual fuck? How can like, where you are you? Yeah. And it is to me, I mean, I, I got kicked out of Christian school in sixth grade for being too progressive. Okay. So this has always been me. I've always been like, mm-hmm. questioner. I want to know why, if it doesn't make sense, I need you to explain it to me mm-hmm. because it doesn't make sense. Right. And I just, I totally just like lost my train of thought. Anyway, okay. Oh, I'm a professional okay. thought dropper, so I appreciate <laughs> that you just thought your job dropped your thought. <laughs> thought dropped, and that is one of the show's shticks. At the end. We'll see you that, all next week. That is like big, big. <laughs> that's the common theme here, really. Yeah, that's like price of admission. It's like you will. Yeah. Off. So we're gonna we're gonna wrap up this episode. But you'll definitely be back because there was so much that we. <laughs> this is a really good episode. I'm really is, excited. I have so many notes that I didn't even get to ask you. Um, but as Kelsey was saying, I think leaving it on the statistics and data that you shared is speaks for itself because data is real and statistics are real. So just. Yeah. Do you want to share anything to close? Um, If I could close with one thing, it would be an invitation to all the folks listening to take on some, what I like to call life homework. Sounds maybe a little silly, but that life homework is to never rush again. And the reason, you know, the base reason for this is because rushing creates violence period. Think about how you feel when you're rushing. Think about internally how you feel. It's almost like your insides, your organs are vibrating. And then you get out the door and then you hit every single red light and then you just get pissed and irritated and your blood pressure elevates and then you're yelling at people on the road, you know, and it's like it creates chaos and it creates violence and it's your nervous system. You know, we want to keep our nervous systems as calm as possible because we live in a culture of constant stress. And so it's really going to blow your mind if you take this on. It will blow your mind how often you put yourself in that situation to feel and create that internal chaos and internal violence that you then spit out to the world. It's like, you know, if you would have just left 15 minutes earlier, (laughs) it's totally my Virgo coming out. Excuse me, but if you would have left 15 minutes earlier, you would not be in this situation. So creating um, a space for yourself to be successful and feel at ease and uh, not always necessarily peaceful, but feeling 
Yeah, not rushed. I mean, it is it is a life-changing practice. I do want to say that I'm really grateful and honored to be a part of these conversations that you're having. I believe it's very important for there to be a platform for dialogue without venom, being able to question things without being dismissed or attacked or, you know, any, any of the things. So I'm grateful that you both have created this space and I'm really, really honored to, to be a part of the conversation. So much love. We definitely want to have Casey back on (laughs) Um, maybe multiple times. There's just too much. She just has too much to offer for one or even I think two episodes. So let's wrap it up there. I think that data that she just shared, and I'll link that in the show notes for anybody who actually wants to look at the information. I think that data really speaks for itself and that's it. That's a lot of information. Yeah. So I think so too. Okay. What a beautiful conversation and we will see you guys in a couple of weeks.